Well, I just want to uh, start this afternoon's uh, discourse with uh, uh, my gratitude and appreciation for for each of you and um, for the the joy uh, of getting to know you a little bit and practicing with you and um, and also, you know, quite honestly, just the the joy of uh, being able to sit with a sangha, you know, of all the con- worldly conditions for human beings, like what what an opportunity it is. Uh, I feel for this being to to uh, to be in your good company and to be in in the company of uh, my Dharma friends and colleagues and teachers. It's um, it's an extraordinary gift, and it's an extraordinary refuge um, in my life. And that's really what leads to this. That's really what leads to, you can't hear? Oh, is it, is it too much? Oh, okay, is that better? Okay, sorry. Thank you. See, we need each other. It's true. So, um, I've been thinking about this, the title of our course, Relating to Ourselves and Others with the Heart of a Buddha. It's kind of a tall order, isn't it? (laughs) It's a tall order. That really came up last night. Uh, I don't know, I mean, obviously, I was meeting with half of you, but in our and our the fourteen of us that was kind of a, a a common theme of like okay you know let so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings I'm just taking pieces of, that came out let none deceive another or despise any being in any state it's a big invitation. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. That sounds good. Radiating kindness over the entire world. Not holding to fixed views. This is said to be the sublime abiding. So what the Buddha is saying is that it's possible. It's possible. He often said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be teaching this, which would be kind of like foolish to be teaching this if, if he didn't not believe but know awakening is possible. And why did he know it? Because he was a human being. He was simply a human being. So he knew that it's possible for the mind to, to wake up. And yet when we gather together in a group and and read this discourse together and reflect on it, you know, what comes up is, how? How is it possible? This, this feels like a tall order. And somebody said uh, last night, if I can just take one piece, one little piece every day, one piece of compassion, then, then I can work with it. No, that's, that's skillful, that's, that's wisdom. That's, that's saying, you know, I am opening into this. When we look at it like, well, that's not me. 
you know, that was the Buddha, I'm no Buddha, um, or that's somebody else, or I can't do that. Guess where we are? We're right in those fixed views. It's right near the end of the sutta. Not holding to fixed views. We don't even know we're holding to fixed views. We just think it's the truth. You know what I'm talking about? It's very freeing to see the fixed views in the mind. This is, this is not a failure. This is, this is the doorway to liberation when we see this. It's not, not my personal failure being human because this mind has fixed, fixed views. It's like, no, actually, it is, it is the human condition that our minds get stuck, get caught, and we suffer. So many of us have heard this very pithy saying from the Buddha, I teach one thing and one thing only. We could do a chorus. Suffering in the end of suffering. Thank you, Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> suffering in the end of suffering. He said that of all the, when he was te- giving one of his talks to a group of monks, he said that he asked them to look at um, the leaves in his hand, and then he said, which is greater? You know, the leaves in this forest that we're in right now, in the grove, or the leaves in my hand? It's like, duh. Okay, the answer to that is the leaves in the forest. And he said that, he said that as a metaphor, that of all that he understood, and this wasn't like, I'm so cool, I understand a lot. This was his way of describing how to, how to direct people's attention in their practice. He said, of all the things I understand, you know, here, here is the essential. This, this is what I have to offer you the, in, the, in, this, in the palm of my hand, these, these leaves. And why? Why? And he said, back to the question this morning, um, because what I offer is essential to the goal. That question this morning, what's the goal? So if we say, well, what is the goal? Maybe the goal is freedom, tranquility, some kind of higher knowledge or wisdom, awakening, a boundless heart. The Buddha said that your task is to learn. Your task is to learn this is suffering, this is the arising of suffering, this is the cessation of suffering. This is the path that leads to the cessation of suffering. That is your task. So he's speaking here, of course, to uh, the Four Noble Truths, which was were, were his first sermon, his first teaching, uh, when he um, realized through his awakening experience that um, <coughs> he was compelled to share it. Um, this was his first teaching. And you'll find this, the Four Noble Truths, across Buddhist traditions as, as a core teaching through Tibetan practice, through Zen practice. So how many in the room are familiar with the Four Noble <coughs> Truths? How many are familiar with the Four Noble Truths Buddha taught? So, so yeah, maybe, maybe like half of you, maybe a little less than half. So what I, I, I'm going to speak to them since they are absolutely... Um, 
the core teachings, and you'll you'll recognize them. You'll recognize them because we, you know, just as the Buddha sat in practice, when you sit in practice, what happens? You start to see more clearly. Now, you may be saying, maybe you see more clearly. (laughs) I don't know that I've seen more clearly. But it often happens when you hear teachings, when you hear instructions in the morning, or you hear a Dharma talk, you, you know, actually, you resonate with it. You're like, oh, yeah. You know, so what that means is you wouldn't be, oh, yeah, if it wasn't in your direct experience. This is one of the core things that the Buddha taught. Don't take my word for it. See for yourself. So, people have trouble with the word suffering. I'm generalizing here, of course. And it is a translation. It's a translation from the Pali. But <clears throat> I've often got, gotten from friends who aren't necessarily Buddhist practitioners, like, isn't that kind of negative? Isn't that kind of like the first teaching? Is like life is suffering? Like, whoa, like what was his problem? Maybe he needed an antidepressant or something. But that's not true. The, the, Buddha, the Buddha's mind was clearly not depressed. So what did he mean by um, life is suffering? Well, some, in some simple ways to speak to that, what he was saying really was that there are aspects of life that are difficult, that we don't really have control over. For one example, he gave birth. I had a midwife say to me, not all birth is painful. Um, and, you know, maybe... Maybe not, but it's kind of an intense experience. Um, those of you that have given birth certainly know that. <laughs> um, and um, those of us that have been born, we may not have a memory of it, but generally it's, uh, it has some, um, some challenge to the, to the human form, for sure. He said, you know, illness is, is suffering. So when we get, you know, we get sick. I mean, I just, uh, coming through a chest cold and, um, you know, thought, you know, doing all the right things to have it not happen. And I uh, was around other people who were sick and so forth. It happens. And, you know, it's unpleasant. I'm certainly not a life-threatening illness. But the, the point here is that mm, I didn't really want it to happen. <laughs> I tried for it not to happen, but it happened. And this is, this is life. This isn't even you know, my particular personal story. Um, it happens to all of us. We get sick. We age. You know, our bodies don't do the same things they used to do, even though we sometimes work very hard to keep them in shape and take care of them in, in particular ways, not, not knocking that. And then death itself, death itself, whether it's our, it's our own death or uh, the loss of another, well, we, can't, we can't control that. It's, it's part of being alive. It's part of being human. This is what the Buddha said is part of our human condition that we could relate to. You, we could use the word suffering or difficulty or pain or loss. Whatever is near and dear to us at some point in our lives, we will lose. So he talked about this kind of suffering, in, or uh, you could change the word if you don't like the word suffering, this, this uh, unsatisfactoriness in 
being human, this difficulty in being human, is unavoidable. And then he talked about the suffering that actually is avoidable. So there's two kinds. And the suffering that is avoidable, as I've been reflecting on this, uh, essentially is how we relate to our experience, how we relate to what's happening. That's where the core of that suffering is. And if you notice in that phrase, the word relate is there. So it's interesting to just reflect on suffering happens in relationship, unnecessary suffering. So that might be, okay, thank you, you've just proved I'm going to my cave tomorrow. I will not deal with people again. Oh, still have to deal with yourself. Sometimes that's worse. Suffering happens in relationship. And so if the suffering happens in relationship and the way out isn't through avoidance, then perhaps the way through, as Daryl was speaking, uh, used the language today of the way through, is through relationship. It's through relationship. And if the way through is relationship, it seems clear that we can't understand the world around us if we don't understand ourselves. How, how could that possibly be? If we don't understand the working of the mind and the heart in a clear way, how can we po possibly understand anyone else's mind or heart? Someone asked today uh, the question of, you know, why this particular form? You know, it's, you know, probably even seems a little rigid, although this is, our form is even, you know, we have more aspects of relational practices in this, but if you go on a traditional retreat, it'll be sitting, walking, sitting, walking, mm, some time for discussion, Dharma talk. So it, it's a form that most of us probably here would say it's challenging, it's difficult. It's not like you're going on vacation. You know, when you come back from retreat, people say, how was your vacation? You know what you're going to say right away. <laughs> it wasn't a vacation. It's not. Um, so why? Well, you know, one, there may be many answers to that, but, but one simple reason is that we bring our attention carefully in to this mind-body process. We purposefully... You know, as we said at the beginning of the retreat, it's not to be torturous to um, let go of our media devices, but actually, or, or to not read, or to not write, or make a phone call, or um, try to find some, you know, listen to some nice music. Um, we purposely come in, we simplify, we, we attune directly to uh, this experience of mind and body. We purposely slow down. So why? So we can really pay attention. So we can see. So we can see clearly. I mean, it really actually is that simple. I, I sat on one retreat. It was a, a month-long retreat um, in the States, and it was taught by a, um, a Burmese master, a monk, elder, uh, Sayadaw Ujanaka, and he had an, actually his attendant was a Canadian monk, and I'm, I don't recall his name, uh, but I do remember that he came into the dining hall, the attendant, and he 
rang the bell very, you know, boom, boom, boom. And you know, people were like pretty slow, I have to say, kind of pretty slow, eating pretty slow. I mean, the whole instruction was just really, really slow way down. What would normally take, you know, five, not even five minutes to go from the Dharma Hall to the dining hall took me about half hour. So he said, he rang the bell, he said, you're eating too fast to the whole group. And it was really interesting because people weren't, you know, were definitely not normal eating. But his point was, um, you can't see clearly if you don't slow down. Slow down. Take time. Really experience what's actually happening. Now, at the time, I found that um, I found that a, a really joyful challenge. Just the conditions in my life that it was it was accessible for me to uh, to embrace that slowing down to sort of to kind of stretch the edge of it, like go even slower. Um, and then you know everyone's conditions are different. There was another person there who was like, I don't know how slow you can go. We, I don't. I think we must have been in the we must have had a yogi job in the kitchen. And it was just really hard for that person to slow down. And, and their nervous system was just, you know, it was just on a higher frequency. And I just, I just remember saying, like, it's okay. You know, you're here. You're practicing. You know, it's, it's, our minds can get into comparing. That's another kind of suffering. You know, like we think we're supposed to be something or someone or somewhere else. You know, how is that possible? Like, think about the insanity of that thought. How is it possible to be anything other than how it is right now? And yet, look at that conditioned mind, you know, that comparing mind. It's like, now you might say, well, what about self-improvement? You know, I, I see someone who's, you know, exercises five times a week, and, you know, I sit on the couch and eat potato chips. I think I would like to be more like them. It's like, great. Maybe that's inspiration. But then what, what happens in the mind? You know, how, do we notice that kind of judging, that condemning, that I'm not good enough? Just like that person was saying to, to me. Um, or we watch in our own minds, like, well, I'm, really, I'm doing it right, you know? <laughs> you know I'm, I, that sitting was great. You know, look at that person over there that's wiggling around. I, I, just had, a, I, had, a, I had a great sitting, you know. And you, and you think, you know, it's, you, your mind just gets seduced by pleasant experiences. Like, oh, this, I got it now. I got it down. You know, you go out, you do a walking. It's kind of nice. Day's beautiful. Notice sounds. Come back in. Sit down. Can't follow a breath for the life of you. You know? And it's like, what happened? What did I do? What's wrong? How did I lose it? Anyone familiar with what I'm saying? Okay. See, I'm losing my papers here. So, yeah, it's, it's a learning. It's a learning. It's not, it's not in no way am I making fun in any, uh, of anybody, my, including myself, but it, we, we don't see how our minds suffer, actually. We don't see this, this second noble truth. So the first one is the Buddha said, you know, Life is suffering, and included in that, there's unnecessary suffering. The second noble truth, he said, there's a cause. This is the good news. This is not about, like, forget it, depression, I'm not interested in Buddhism. It's, whoa, here, this outline, there's a cause. So what's the cause? The cause is this attachment, this clinging to how we want it to be, or 
how we don't want it to be. It's its own kind of clinging. Whatever we resist persists. So in something like that sixth sitting that happens after you've had what you would call, quote, a good sitting or a peaceful sitting, and it's not that way, and, you know, you just hear the litany in your mind. What did I do wrong? How, you know, oh, forget it. I'm not good at this. Or I don't know what happened. Confusion, judgment. We miss the whole point that actually it's just restlessness or it's just energy. It's just not liking the restlessness. So this, the, this is the good news that the more we cultivate awareness and the more we actually draw on the teachings about how to even notice this clinging, that's, that's a doorway. That's a doorway to peace right there. It's not about where somewhere down the line I'm going to get it. It's right in that moment. Right in that moment when we can see, oh, oh. Someone talked about it today in the small group. It's like, oh, I wanted it to be this way. I want, and in the first day of my retreat, I, I, this is how I wanted it to be, and it wasn't. And then there was that realization, oh, that's all it was, was wanting it to be a certain way. It wasn't, and that's okay. We can be with that. We can more than be with it. We can see clearly what happens with that wanting mind, this second noble truth, the cause of suffering, the cause of this unnecessary suffering is the mind that clings and the mind that grasps and the mind that resists. And why is it a cause of suffering? Because it's delusion. It's, it's, it's not seeing that life actually doesn't work that way. Anyone notice? <laughs> I mean, can you make life how you want it to be, like all the time? Anyone in this room? It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. And look at the energy we put into it. There's like a million dollar industry, I don't know, maybe not in Canada, but definitely in the States, on self-help books, right? Now, if anyone in this room has written a self-help book, (laughs) because they can be useful to a degree, they certainly can be useful. They help give us some guides. And when we get overly attached to, if I just do this, this, and this, it's all going to be good. And then if I don't do this, this, and this, then I've failed. We're caught. You know, we're caught in this uh, tightrope of, of good and bad, of, of uh, self-improvement versus you know, self-failure, of this, this whole uh, stream of trying and doing and becoming. And all of it is missing being. Now, you might be there, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, what are you saying? You're saying that it's not useful to have an intention, it's not useful to have a program. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the teachings here are saying look directly into the mind, look directly into the mind that doesn't allow what's happening to just be. So just, you know, just for an example, um, well, I gave one in terms of sitting, but let's just say it's more than just, oh, good sitting, bad sitting. Let's just say you're sitting there and a memory comes up. A memory comes up, or a situation in your life comes up through, through the thoughts and, 
and there's a lot of feeling that arises. A lot of maybe it's sadness, maybe it's grief, maybe it's anger, maybe it's fear. You know, unpleasant kinds of emotions that we tend to not want to feel. Actually, someone else was asking a question about this today. So, how do you work with that medita- meditation practice? Turn your attention towards, if you can, if there's enough stability in the mind. And I say enough, it doesn't have to be perfect, but enough where you feel you can turn the attention to that curiosity, like what is happening right now? Oh, it's sadness. We actually come out of the story because our tendency of mind is to, to, to go in the story, to repeat in the story, to, to kind of perseverate. And we actually, one way to really easily come out of perseveration is just to come to the body, come to bring your attention to the body, and just say, what's happening right now? Oh, oh, it's fear. It's fear. Oh, what, you know, can I feel that? So what's fear like? Like boom, 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 moving heart, maybe tightening stomach, whatever it is for you, you begin to notice the body sensations. And you know that line, I didn't write it down, but the line, just like a mother protects her only child, that's that's a doorway for me in that. I, I think it's so beautiful. So it's like we bring our attention like a mother protecting her only child, that feeling. That impermanent feeling, I'm not saying it's a being, but we bring the care to that feeling. Bring bring our presence, bring you you know kindness if you will or just attention like what's happening interest curiosity that cuts through that habituated mind that says nope can't have that got to get rid of that oh i want that uh, can i have some more of that love feeling over there like that's that's how it's supposed to be and i should get it and let me keep trying to get it well that really works doesn't it no one's saying anything. Does that work? <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't. It's, it sounds good, but actually you know what happens. The harder you try to feel you know, clear and open and get your meditation just right, you know, what happens? You get a stomach ache, you get a headache, you get frustrated. It's like, forget this practice is not for me. Or those teachers, they really don't. They're not really doing... They're not as good as the other teachers I had. And they're probably not as good as the people I'm going to have in the future. I'm not coming back on this retreat again. You know, we watch our minds. Like, when they go into aversion, you know, we don't, if we don't know that's what's happening, we just believe the thoughts. We just believe them. We just think they're the truth. So what's it like to just notice there's this thought stream happening, and, oh, what, you know, what's the relationship to that? oh, it's not liking, or maybe you're burning, you're burning with that feeling of aversion. It's not even like a little bit of not liking. It's like, pff, body's on fire, really on fire. So, you know, can we be with that? Just notice, like, wow, burning, anger, rage, grief, sadness. You know, and as I say this, it's not like we can always be present with it. I mean, the story I told you about the person on the retreat saying, like, how can you be so slow? That being in those conditions, it was too much to slow down. Sometimes it's too much to go close in to what our experience is. So, so we need to widen it a little bit. And sometimes maybe widen it a lot. So we bring the attention towards just the very edge of it, you know? Or, you know, 
fear is really an interesting emotional state to work with because it's 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 almost like it it has its own energetic repellent. If you move towards fear, it's it's like boom, you know, you can feel yourself flip off it, so to speak. So sometimes if we just go to the edge of it, like oh, oh, you know, you almost like oh, that that's actually fear. You know, where you're discovering what's really happening, and that builds confidence. When we can actually come close enough to the experience, even when it's unpleasant, and be present with it, it will build confidence in your practice. It will build strength in your practice. And, and guess what? It's not just your practice here on a cushion. This is like, coming on a retreat is like doing scales. If you're a musician or, you know, or an athlete, you're, you know, you're doing your, your warm-ups. It's, it's, it's practice for life. It's practice for being in life. So the more you can actually cultivate that attention here, that's why, that's why the, all the encouragement drop the distractions because this is such precious time to learn these skills. You, you learn that capacity like, I can be with what's difficult. You know, you really take that to the, the core. It might mean I can be with my own dying process. It might be that I can be with someone who's very dear to me who's passing. Or it might be that I can be with this habituated, judging, mental thought in the form of self-hatred. It might be that I can actually start to see that for what it is and not be run by it. Now that's what I would call liberation. So, we see that there's two kinds of suffering. We see that there's the suffering of not seeing clearly and getting lost in these difficult states. Please don't misunderstand that what's being said here is that difficult states shouldn't happen. It's not true. That's just, that's just not how life is. But what shifts is our relationship to them. So we see, here's the suffering, here's the relationship to it. If we start to let go of it, it has to be a certain way. Then we get more spacious and open and interested in how is it? And when we're spacious and interested in how is it, there's there, you know, even if judgment arises, you just don't it just don't grab onto it as much. It's like, oh there's 195 judgment number 2051 or something. You know, it just judgment comes up in the mind. It we just we just don't have to get on that train and go for the ride. You can just, you know, there's the train. And, and as we start to relate to ourselves in that way, maybe you're, maybe you're already thinking about this, what happens if we start to, to see more clearly our own minds and hearts, we start to understand the nature of unnecessary suffering with that grasping or that trying to push away or trying to manipulate our experience. We can settle more, we can be present. Compassion arises for just the, the, the vulnerability of being human. 
We might even notice more forgiveness towards ourselves. That starts to shift in our relationship with others. Well, and that, that can be challenging, right? It can be challenging. But what starts to happen through practice is if this is true for this being, if there's uh, the mind gets lost in aversion or desire, you know, like wanting the pleasant all the time, if it gets lost in that, if it happens in this mind, likely it happens in other minds, you know, and you begin to see, begin to see when another mind is caught in that. So I'll I'll give you an example, and it certainly helped because um, that I was on retreat to be able to see it this clearly, but it was, I don't know, 30 years ago or so, I was on a, I was on a retreat, it was a week-long retreat, and um, I had, I lived on the third floor of this apartment, and um, I had uh, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, um, had a, a dog, and she was away, and so I was taking care of the dog, but I was going on this retreat. So I asked another person to help care for the dog, and a long story short, the dog was, um, the dog was fine, but the dog was the person who took care of it tied the dog up to a tree, like with a long lead, but keep in mind, I was renting an apartment. And my landlord lived on the first floor. So, and uh, and I just didn't, when I was in my 20s or something at the time, I, I didn't even think to say, you know, <laughs> don't tie the dog in my landlord's yard. <laughs> but at any rate, this is leading to a point. When I got home, and my landlord was an, an elder man and very, very well-meaning, but, you know, very traditional. And he greeted me when I got out of the car, and his face was, like, bright red. And he was not a happy camper. He he was really he was really really mad. And his voice was raised and it was kind of in my face. And you know what happened? I just I just saw his suffering. I just saw his suffering. I, I did not feel like I was under threat of you know, I, I mean I definitely did not think he would physically harm me. But I just saw how much pain he was in. And, and I also saw how much he actually was caring about the dog. You know, what upset him was that the dog had been tied up. And so there's this moment, God, I can, actually I can sort of feel like I just want to cry telling you this story. This was so long ago. He's long left this world. But I just remember feeling such genuine compassion for him, you know, that he was in pain. And what went along with that, and this is a key point, is that there was compassion for myself. Because obviously, I didn't intend for that to happen. Don't we, don't we all have those kind of experiences where you do the best you can, and sometimes it's just like, whoops, you know? It wasn't so great for someone else. And, um, and, and, and that skill in being able to hear that, you know, to hear that from another, and, uh, you know, not go into... Well, you know, sometimes we do go into shame. So then can we be with shame and just notice that's happening? Shame is there. Okay? Take some time with that. Come around. Like, if I was that person in their circumstance, I might feel the same way. I mean, there's so much to really bring into our practices in, with, in relationship with each other. 
I mean, what, what Daryl and I are bringing in is like just a teeny little bit because, because we both have um, longed for this kind of integration into a formal meditation situation, practice. And so for some of you, maybe you're, you know, you've known, maybe, maybe it's been a little frustrating for you because there's, there's a, um, a lot of talking and a lot of input. It's a different kind of retreat. But really, it's in service of how do we start to bring some of these practices in, in relating to ourselves uh, in our relationship with another. And talk about slowing down. I mean, that's one of the great gifts that Thich Nhat Hanh offered his sangha. I practiced with him once for three weeks, and it was so much on, on sangha. There was really not a lot of silence. And I remember just initially like, what? Mm, I didn't like it. You know, it wasn't enough silence, and, you know, silence is much better. You know, just watching my mind do this kind of thing. And then I realized at the end of the retreat how much the mind actually did get concentrated through relating. <laughs> he gave beautiful Dharma talks, went through the whole Satipatthana Sutta. Um, but, you know, his focus really was on Sangha building. And he would say, you know, uh, when he lived in community with monks and nuns, you know, in Plum Village. And he would say, when you're in a conflict, take 24 hours, take a pause, take some time before you come back together to, to resolve that issue. You know, we're quick. We can be quick. Or it can go in the other direction. We can go into um, shutdown. We can go into freeze. Or we just don't feel anything. Some of you might be familiar with that. It just—it's just so overwhelming. You go into freeze. So even that needs time to, to settle and to come back into, you know, a sense of aliveness and what's actually happening. There's so much we can, we can work with, in this relational field, in just understanding. This kind of suffering, this kind of clinging and resisting or strong identification you know this is me and this is you and I'm right and you're wrong or you're right and I'm wrong these fixed views when we start to actually see oh that's what the mind is holding on to uh, there's more space um, another a person in the group last night gave a beautiful example of um, being with other people uh, that they described as you know not people they would necessarily hang out with. Forgive me if I'm telling your story wrong, but the gist of what the story was is is that uh, that this person decided to just listen. It's just so beautiful. Just just to just listen, even if one doesn't agree, to just be open to this expression of humanity. Okay, so for the political activists in the room, we'll just, we'll just have to have another conversation about that. Because, yeah, it brings up all kinds of questions about how do we engage skillfully around what's deeply important to us. I think Buddhist practice helps with that tremendously. I don't have the scope to, uh, to, to say more about that in this talk, but... But suffice it to say that when we understand, again, this relationship to uh, uh, liking and not liking, 
aversion and desire and we start to see through we start to see how it runs us and runs in our lives uh, space opens space opens to to relate to ourselves and to others in in a different way in a radically different way actually so I'll just um, give you um, another personal example it's more recent and um, it was also just a very opening experience for me um, you know how quick texts are I, I've just been really reflecting on texts are so like demanding aren't they in a way I mean some of you may be more sk skilled at like just turning your phone off I just feel like it's like boom there it is and um, I have an elderly mother who's 94 and I have one sibling and um, he is male and um, we have probably different ways we mm, mm, value or act upon our, our love for our mother. And I have no doubt in my mind how much my brother loves my mother. Um, and he's, I, you know, he's, he's a good man. And in this mind, it will go into this one here, it will go into some critical thinking and evaluation of his um, time frequency of, of visiting our mother. And it can really get big. You know, there's only one other sibling, right? It can, it can get kind of big in my mind, and, and how do I want to communicate that, et cetera. And long story short, uh, I got this text, and I was fast moving. It was the morning. I was getting ready to work. I, just checked my text, here's a text from him, and it sounded, when I read the text, I was reporting something to him before, and it sounded like he was telling me what I didn't do right in, in my mother's house. It was a, it was a um, leak, leaking sink. And I was just, my mind was just like pissed. You know, just like, really, I had no, I didn't even see the righteousness in my mind. Like, how could he? You know, I'm the one fill in the blank, right? You know where it goes. So, you know, I drove to work, you know, kind of, you know, shared it with my wife. Like, can you believe he said that? You know, and then later in the day, I looked at the text. Okay? He didn't even say what I thought he said. It was like such a Dharma gift. It's like, wow, look at that. Thank God I didn't text him back. I started to, and I was like, no, I don't have time. I've got to get to work. But it's a, such a good example of what, how when we move quick, what happens. And it was just a few words that I read wrong. And he was actually, he's an engineer, so he was just like kind of going through some details of something, but he was not telling me. I didn't do it right. And it was, it's fascinating to see. Now, there's like a deep conditioning there in terms of our history together. But what a gift, what a liberating moment to see that, to just see it, to feel it, to feel kind of in some ways that phew, I didn't write the text, but also that um, I could also just immediately feel so much love for him and, um, and for myself and for our relationship in its, its own little, you know, <laughs> you know, wounded way that it kind of, it kind of, goes along, you know, and, and often what comes with those kind of realizations is one of us will die, 
and I don't know who will be first. And that just levels the playing field right there. So that's, that's the fruit of practice, friends. That's what happens. It's not like those things don't happen. It's just that, um, it's just that there's more capacity to, um, to meet difficulty uh, with some compassion and maybe a little bit of wisdom, maybe a little post-wisdom, but it was there at some point. And uh, it's certainly what keeps me engaged in my practice, particularly with, with aging and with, you know, uh, you know, with a mother who I, who I consider very dear and did not always have a dear relationship with her and just have an incredible opportunity to have that uh, closeness with her now. Just, you know, and when someone who's that old, you, you're just like, wow. You know, wow. It's, it's all so fleeting. And, of course, many of you sitting in this room may have had people who have passed not when they're old, it is fleeting. Maybe you've had children that you've lost. Maybe you've had a sibling. Maybe you've had a loved one. You know, it's not like it's, uh, it's just old age that we reach because some of us won't and don't. This practice is if followed, and it will not be followed perfectly, but if followed and engaged in, will, will lead to freedom, will lead to, will lead to an open heart, will lead to compassion, will lead to wisdom. There's no doubt about that. And if you uh, are so inclined to continue practicing, you will, you know, there's so much in just this one teaching of the Four Noble Truths uh, there's a whole, t- the fourth noble truth is a whole path of practice that the Buddha goes through, um, wise understanding and, um, and, and how wise understanding leads to clear seeing and clear thinking and how clear thinking leads to uh, wise action and wise speech and wise livelihood and that what supports this understanding is our continued practice of wise effort and mindfulness and attention. Uh, so it's, it's a very practical outline that um, if followed with perseverance and with love and with kindness um, will lead to an unshakable liberation of the heart and mind. And so that is the invitation and just to remember it's not a straight line but what is what is so I will end with a poem that I would guess many of us in the room know this poem and you know, kind of when you teach, you want to get like a cool poem that no one's ever heard. <laughs> but I really love this poem, so I'm going to share this one. <laughs> this being human is a guest house. Thank you, Rumi. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes. 
as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He, she, they may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door, laughing, and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door, laughing, and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So let's just sit together for a minute. 